0: coming up next on the wet fly swing podcast
1: if you protect your resources and you value them in a way that people can enjoy them sustainably that's i think important to remember too well you've just created a an economic engine and an economic activity that can last for generations you know if the people that enjoy it are involved in protecting it as well so they're you know, there's multiple benefits, and like I said, man, I mean, like I've had a blast fishing for salmon and steelhead in the Great Lakes
0: tribs. That was Patrick Barry with a strategy to get involved and assure sustainability this year. Fly casting instruction, fly tying tips and tricks, and conservation today on the swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. We got a big giveaway we just launched this week. It's going strong right now. You can check it out. Go to wetflyswing.com giveaway right now, and you can enter to win this big trip to the Steelhead School. This is Steelhead Alley with Jeff Lesgay and Rick Custich this year. It's going to be big. Heading to New York uh, and Ohio this year, we have a good event going. So check it out right now, wetflyswing.com slash giveaway. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest euro reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate, and you can hold your dead drifts longer without shoulder burn. Check out Maverick Fly Fishing Stinger and their other EuroNymph products and support this podcast by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash Maverick right now. That's Maverick, M-A-V-R-K, wetflyswing.com slash Maverick. Check out the lightest and most unique EuroNymphing reel right now. Established in 1928, Deddy Flies is the oldest family-run fly shop in the world, now in their 94th year. Deddy's mission has always been to supply the fly fishing community with the finest products and services. Every fly they sell is either tied in-house or by a handful of select domestic tires. Please head over to wetflyswing.com deddy to grab your in-house flies today. That's wetflyswing.com deddy, D-E-T-T-E, to support this podcast and the oldest fly shop in the world. Patrick Berry takes us into Fly Fishers International and the resources you can utilize right now for fishing and for conservation. We discover where locally you can get involved in sustaining your fishing and your fishery. We find out which top national issues they are working on this year and some history to find out how it all started for Patrick and FFI. Plus we get a William Shatner and Leonardo DiCaprio shout out. This is a fun one. Here we go. Patrick Barry from flyfishersinternational.org. How you doing, Patrick?
1: I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on, Dave.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you making some time, uh, you know, in your busy schedule to come on and talk a little about Flyfishes International. Um, you know, the name, you guys, along with a few others, probably, I mean, I think Trout Unlimited is another big conservation group. Uh, you guys come up a lot, you know, and I've had Lynn Zickler on back in episode 95. We'll have a link to the show notes to that as well. So I'm I'm excited to hear, get an update on what you guys have going, because you're huge out there in the fly fishing space and conservation. But um, before we jump into all that, let's take it back real quick to fly fishing, because I know you have a lot of experience there as well. How'd you get into fly fishing and kind of what's that first memory?
1: You know, my experience and journey was probably like a, a lot of people where I didn't necessarily start with a fly rod. You know, w- when you have really old memories in life, they're like little Polaroid snapshots in your mind. I don't know if that makes sense, but my first three memories in life were of fish and fishing. And I thought that I had dreamt it until I remembered asking my folks about it, my parents. And, you know, I could tell you about that, but I mean, I have this vivid memory. Um, when I grew up, you know, we just didn't have a whole lot. And, um, my, we actually went on a camping trip and my father made fishing rods out of sticks, Hmm. string, safety pins for hooks. And we dug up worms and, I remember uh, I have this vision of a sunfish on the bottom of a tin boat. And my recollection is that it was this huge lake. What's so funny, Dave, is I've since been back and it's this little pond. I think I was like three years old. Anyway, I've always been really just fascinated by fish and I would fish for carp with dough balls. I didn't care, man. I just wanted something on the end of my line and uh you know that sort of led into into fly fishing and I had played uh you know competitive sports and i I went to uh college to play uh sports and um ended up uh really screwing my back up my freshman year um playing football and um and I suddenly had all this free time in the afternoons that was always taken up by practice and I just went fishing all the time um i had a uh this really beat up, I think it was a it was a big one. It was like a 17 foot aluminum Grumman canoe that had been shot with a shotgun a couple of times. So millions of little pellet holes I was constantly trying to patch to keep the thing from sinking. <laughs> um and I was in college in Vermont and you know I just I hadn't really discovered trout yet, but I, I kind of had an idea where they lived. And, you know, I gotta give gotta give props to Tom Rosenbauer at Orvis, who's who's since become a friend, but you know, I remembered reading his early books, um, which still stick with me, some of what I learned to this day. Anyway, so some guy um, who was from Colorado knew I fished in the afternoons um, and weekends a lot, yeah, you know, mostly for bass and pike and stuff like that with conventional gear. And he said, hey, man, do you know where there's any trout? And I said, you know, I have a pretty good idea where I think there are some decent fish. So I took him down to this one section of river, not too far from campus, and you know, I was above in this plunge pool and he was down through these sort of riffles and rapids. And um, every time I turned around, he had on a big trout or was landing a big trout. And I thought, huh. And that was it right there. I mean, I immediately went and bought a total garbage fly rod at the hook and bullet store in town that basically had like one fly rod. And I don't think I pick, I I just became obsessed with, I mean, it's a, you know, story a lot of people have, right. You know, where, um, I can tell you exactly where I caught my first trout, you know, the fly that I used, the drift that I made, you know, the excitement that I had, you know, just really got me rolling from there. And so, you know, then I picked up, you know, fly tying and I wanted to learn more about the bugs and, and how to fish. And so, you know, bought books on entomology and, You know, anyway, it just that was that was those were the very beginnings, and again, probably similar to a lot of people, but it just something about it that just really caught my attention and um, my imagination. Frankly, the mystery of trout was just, God, it was just this world. You know, they they live under the water and they eat insects, and you got to figure out what they're eating and solve this puzzle. And that's true to this day, but it's that magic and mystery that I think caught my attention.
0: Nice. Yeah, I love that. I think you, yeah, the planting the seed of, it seems like, you know, a lot of people have that, that first, Maybe sometimes, like you said, it's your dad with the rod, putting the rod together. And then it's that person in college who kind of showed you trout, right? And then you're there. And it sounds like you have that path. I mean, you not only fly fishing, but it sounds like everything you do, you kind of take it to the highest levels because you've got this conservation work that you've been doing. And I know you've got some experience even before FFI yep. uh, working in conservation. So was that something you studied in college? Was the conservation track always a focus or the fisheries, all that stuff?
1: You know, well, first I want to acknowledge, you're right. I am that kind of person where I dive into something and, um, you know, I'm not, if we're being honest, nobody's the best at anything, Like right? Everybody always has something to learn. And if someone's out there is always better than you at what you think you're really good at. Um, But it's just, it's the interest that, you know, wanting to be proficient at something is what often drives me, you know, so whether it's fly fishing or, you know, I train spaniels, you know, for hunting and field trials, you know, nationally competitive kind of thing when, and, you know, other, we all have hobbies like that, that, you know, we dive into, but the conservation focused actually was another typical story about what happens when you start to fly fish, you know, as Lee Wolf said, every time you teach someone to fly fish, you've just created a new conservationist. And, and that's really the link. And, you know, after, you know, trout bumming for a while, you know, I classic, you know, uh, after I got out of college, you know, lived in the back of my truck, which was the biggest piece of crap.
0: (laughs) What was it? What was the truck? Oh
1: my God. It was awesome. It was a 1977 two wheel drive Dodge Prospector. Oh, wow. Uh, Oh, yeah. The only thing about it that was valuable is that it was the old, um, the original Dodge 318 engine, so I could actually fix it when it broke down in the middle of nowhere, which, by the way, happened in the middle of nowhere, uh, but near uh, the Green River in Flaming Gorge, Utah. But the entire exhaust system was put together with uh, beer cans and coat hangers. (laughs) One window didn't go down. The other didn't go up. It was just, it was, it was, it was anyway. Um, you know, so I kind of did the whole trout bump thing, ended up, uh, running out of money living in my truck in Jackson, Wyoming. And I'm like, well, darn it. I'm going to have to get a job now. And, uh, so funny and coincidental. Uh, my, my first job in a fly shop was with, uh, Jeff Courier. Oh, it was. Oh yeah. So,
0: and, uh, we're still buddies to this day. Right. Back at the old, uh, what, what, who was the guy running the, on that shop?
1: Well, it was, it was was the Jack Dennis outdoor shop. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I kind of went through that progression and, you know, I got to this place where I, you know, I'd been done doing some commercial tying and got into some guiding and instruction and all that. But I just felt like I wanted to do something more that was kind of a, a parallel track to being involved in fly fishing. And that's when I really shifted to conservation. And frankly, reading Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac was a, an incredibly important moment, or not moment, but sort of a time where it just connected with me on so many levels um, that I ended up deciding to go to uh, graduate school for um, in environmental science and um, ended up going to University of Montana in Missoula and doing uh, my master's work there in environmental science with a uh, a focus on, you know, freshwater ecology and and fisheries. And that's really when uh, my, you know, I guess my conservation focused career
0: took off. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And then I think you, after that, did you head back? When did the Vermont, I think you headed back there, right? For a while. Yeah. So,
1: um, You know, I went to college in Vermont, which is actually the same town that Middlebury where um, my wife was born and raised, although she went to a different school. So of course, it's super fun for all my buddies to tell me I married a townie. (laughs) And uh, anyway, so, you know, I had this connection, had this long connection here to Vermont. Uh, You know, we lived in uh, Missoula for a while. Um, I was a full-time guide while I was going to school, you know, 140, 150 days a year, which is Plenty, thank you very much. Wow, yeah, and so you know when we we were in Montana, which of course we loved, but uh, Brooke, my wife, she just missed her home, and I love I love it here in Vermont as well. And so we decided to come back, which um, was <laughs> confusing for all of my buddies out there in Western Montana because they're like, "Why would you ever leave this place?" Which is a fair. Let's just be honest, Dave. It's a fair question. Yeah, uh, um, right. Yeah. So, you know, I I ended up um, coming back to Vermont. You know, I worked for the Vermont Natural Resources Council, which was the affiliate for the National Wildlife Federation and became the legislative and policy director on some really important conservation and environmental quality issues, um, you know, that extended... You know, beyond what you might think is a focus on trout, uh, you know, I ended up gaining a lot of experience in fundraising and, uh, you know, worked at uh, Vermont Law School as the director of governmental affairs and um, director of their uh, fundraising for their environmental law center, which was the top uh, environmental law center in the country. Hmm. And then from there ended up uh, being appointed by the governor as the head of Vermont's Fish and Wildlife Department. And that was, you know, I could, like, boy, do I have some stories about that, right? Um, but an incredible experience. And I'm, I'm really, really proud of my time there and what we're able to accomplish in terms of, you know, conservation. And uh, I think we got the department in a really good place and, and updated a lot of really important laws and regulations, and, including, you know, things that people don't necessarily think about, like uh, uh, declaring fish and wildlife resources uh, in the public trust. In other words, owned by everybody, not by an individual. And and at the time, I think we were only the second state that uh, had taken that extraordinary step to declare those re- fish and wildlife resources in the public interest. So anyway, there's a lot of history and a lot of stories there. Um, but, you know, there's a few other stops along the way with my career, but that's the, those are the highlights, I suppose. <laughs>
0: that's cool. Yeah, no, and we'll we'll stay, we'll, we might circle back around on some of that. So, But let's go into, you know, Five Fish International and kind of maybe do a broad brush stroke of what you have gone since, you know, it's been quite a while since we talked to Lynn. And so let's give an update. So I know we've got the history there. You guys have this really cool history, but what's your take on conservation? Like, what are you focusing on? What are people that don't know about FFI or the details, what would you tell them?
1: I see FFI as the organization that is available to guide people on their fly fishing journey, no matter what their skill level is or where they live or what fish is their favorite thing to chase after. Um, You know, we started out with a focus on conservation, education and community back in the 1960s um, when the organization was founded, and we've stayed true to our roots to this day, uh, our biggest strength area really is in you know high quality fly fishing education supported by our our conservation work. So, you know, as as you know this stuff, you know, Dave, but just for the listeners, yeah. you know, the um, casting instructor certification program um, at FFI is considered the premier you know casting instructor program in the world. Um, and and that's, what, that's what a lot of people know about FFI, but may not know that there's a whole suite. Let's just take casting, for example, of casting activities from the very beginner to the most advanced, which um, you can you know, check out the resources we have online. Um, we've got you know, a ton of, uh, of really great how to uh, videos you know, that can meet anybody's needs through you know, um, our own learning portal we have online. You know, we've got 250 clubs in, you know, in a huge geography that, you know, where there's a culture of mentorship and teaching and a lot of distinct education um, programs that complement fly casting. You know, so obviously fly tying, fly fishing skills and conservation. When you go to our, the portal where you can learn, you know, whatever you want to know about fly fishing, it's casting, tying, skills and conservation, those four. So conservation you know, is on an equal level. So, you know, even though I, I think we perceive of ourselves as really, you know, having our sweet spot in fly fishing education, conservation is a critical part of that fly fishing education. Mm. And we focus a lot of effort and energy on working with our conservation partners to, you know, help support the work that they do, while also providing our own conservation grants for worthy projects that align with our goals of, of what we would love to see happen in protecting and restoring fisheries habitat.
0: That's perfect. Yeah, I love that. That's a great summary. So conservation is right along. Yeah, I, mean, I think, think when I first heard about FFI, I think it was the uh, FFF, right? Federation of Life. That's right. well, Yeah, yeah, before it changed. So but, uh, but yeah, I thought of that and I hear all the stories about the casting and, and, and I actually I even tested it out for a while. I went into the, I think I took the first series of that program and uh, it's pretty cool because what you hear from people that have gone through it is that it's, you realize a couple of things when you get into it, that you're not as good of a caster as you thought you were, you're <laughs> right. And so, and that's part of the program, but yeah, you guys are, I think are at the top of the game as far as that, the certification, um, which is cool. But today, yeah, I want to focus on the conservation piece because you sure. are, we're doing this event in the Great Lakes. And part of this, I always come in thinking like, we're doing this cool thing. We're giving away a trip to go out to the Great Lakes to go steelhead fishing. But I always it to be with the backdrop of like, okay, remember, we've got some, some things going on out there, the conservation, the issues. And right now is like, do you feel like right now is one of those times where it just feels like there's so much going on and, and maybe it could even be a negative thing because of the, the planet. Right. What's your take on that? Just looking broad. This is really broad, but Sure. You know what I mean? Like what is your take when you see everything going on right now? Climate change, seems like things are warmer. I've had many guests talk about how well brook trout are going away. There's nothing we can do about it, right? I mean, stuff like that. What's your take there?
1: I think that we are in the midst of a crisis that is unfortunately not universally understood or accepted and really good science has you know been overshadowed by the politics of environmental issues and how people view that i don't understand how you can put your head in the sand based on the incredible changes we're seeing globally um whether it's the crazy floods we've had here in vermont which has been on national news i mean you know a once in 1000 year rain event mm. which you know obviously doesn't happen that often But certainly, you know, five and 10 year flood events are happening on a more regular basis. You know, I'm just saying, you know, where I live. And then you look at the extreme heat in parts of the United States and around the world. You know, obviously, you know, you look at the, the, you know, the melting, you know, ice caps. I mean... It's a crisis to the point where if we don't get a handle on this, we're really gonna have to pivot from mitigation to adaptation. And and clearly I think we're already in adaptation mode. And unfortunately realizing that a warming climate actually has significant effects all on its own because of how it impacts other pollutant sources, which may become more harmful as the weather warms because of the changes in um sort of chemistry ability for nutrient loading ability for waters to hold oxygen nutrient cycling you know all the different factors that go into this you know all the ingredients that you know are the recipe for healthy fisheries are completely out of balance right now um so it's a huge worry you know to the point of uh, about uh you know brook trout or toast anyway I don't blame anybody who is feeling, you know, that sort of sense of hopelessness. Yeah. But I just I can't go through life thinking that way, right? So no, you know, I'm trying to focus on what we can do to help with mitigation and adaptation. And you know, listen, we were fortunate um, with the conservation either at a state and federal level, you know, for a lot of different land like you know take the national forest in fact i'll just use you know my home state of vermont as an example which you know i'm sure there's an analog in oregon mm-hmm. you know where you know green mountain national forest protects the headwater streams where these brook trout live i can still you know go up into the mountains and catch these little you know 4 to 10 inch jewels native brook trout in you know heavily you know big canopies for protected forests you know cold water um, you know that pours out of the mountains I mean I happen to live across the road from a, a pretty natural uh, wild trout fishery but that those examples are anecdotal and they're limited and what I mean by that is sure there are places I can give you examples where the landscape has been protected to support the habitat necessary for sensitive fish species like brook trout which by the way you know reminder too that you know it was, Twenty years ago, when we were talking about the effects of uh, acid rain from mm. power plants in the Midwest right. having a serious negative effect on you know wild and native fish in the Adirondacks and then over into parts of southern Vermont, so you know we've been kind of trying to run away from pollutants affecting cold water fisheries habitat for a while. So anyway, yeah, I can give you an example of that. But there's a reality, too, where all of these factors are interconnected. And, you know, I'm sure you and your listeners are following what's happening right now on the big hole um, and the Jefferson drainage in Montana. And I'm pretty certain they're going to find that a continually warming climate has as much to do with the impacts because, yes, there is nutrient loading that they've discovered they need to deal with. But again, that's exacerbated. Um, by those elevated temperatures uh, consistently over time.
0: Right. The big hole is that the, um, remind us again, what species are involved in that?
1: So here's, (laughs) that's a great question. And here are some of the challenges too, is that you're mostly talking about rainbow and brown trout, which are not native species. Mm. However, whitefish are. And so, you know, I think it's fair to say the state of Montana has been too slow to act in addressing what they have seen coming as declining uh, fish numbers uh, this year, reaching the all-time low point, which you know has created um, a sense of urgency more than probably previous years. Um, but I even the it, when you're talking about impacts on native whitefish, and by the way, you know, reminder to everybody as you know I understand it. It is the last. Um, place where you can find grailing in the lower 48 states, which also require cold, clean water too. Um, I think we often forget that brown trout and rainbow trout in certain parts, well, brown trout anywhere in the country, but certainly rainbow trout in certain parts of the country, while they're, and this is what gets me, I understand they're not native fish, but they are an incredibly important indicator of overall watershed health. Right. And just because those populations are declining, even if they're not native, shouldn't be any kind of reason to ignore what's an urgent situation, because if they're on the decline, you've got water quality problems that you've probably let get away from you.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Trestle, who has earned an exceptional reputation over the past few years in the fly fishing industry due to the popularity of their telescopic fly rod roof racks and statement-making artist series apparel lines. Their latest release for 2023 is the Jerian Universal Bike Rack Packing System, a brand new way to transport your fly fishing and outdoor gear. The Jerion will give any modern bike the ability to bring 30 pounds of gear with its front and rear articulated racks. Whether you ride a full suspension mountain bike, an e-bike, or even a carbon fiber road bike, the Jerion will get you and your fishing gear further faster and have much more fun along the way. I can tell you this has been a big struggle for me. I've been riding my bike, uh, both road bikes and mountain bikes, and had lots of issues over the years packing my gear, whether that's uh, crappy uh, storage on the back or a trailer that's just too big and bulky. So I'm excited to share this packing system, which is going to make it way more convenient and accessible to get out to the places you need to go. You can learn more about how Trestle is transforming the way you access your favorite water, backcountry hunting zones, and camping spots. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Trestle right now and be the first on the water and the farthest upstream and away from the crowds. That's Trestle, T-R-X-S-T-L-E. Trestle, live your pursuit. We've heard some of those stories too, just like down on the you know, the South Fork of the Snake where, you know, you've yep. got Rainbow and I think they're removing, uh, they've got a bounty on Rainbow to, to try to get back to those, um, you know, the native populations of the cutthroat. And that's a whole debate there as well. But yeah, so, I mean, I think it's hard, you know, the thing I don't want to do is make this a downer episode, right? Because I yeah. think that's, that's a lot of the thing. I think people, when they talk about conservation, I think that's maybe why conservation podcasts struggle because people don't want all the downer. They want to be uplifted. So I feel like, you know, there are some opportunities for people to do some things. I mean, what is your recommendation? If somebody's listening now. They really want to do something. You know, they want to be part of this the solution, not part of the just, you know, the downer stuff. What do you tell them? I mean, they can get involved with you guys. What's your recommendation if somebody's somewhere in this country or around the world?
1: I'm so glad you asked that question. And I'll just tell you why real quick. I think one of the failings of the climate change movement in general, Dave, is that, um There's not an entity in a leadership capacity that has provided information for how your average person can make a difference when it comes to climate change. The discussion becomes about, you know, policy, right? And and what we should do. Right. Policy and politics. (laughs) Right. Right. And instead of saying, here's what you can do as an individual, and and it's and you know, when it comes from you know, an environmental organization or a conservation organization is viewed differently than if it comes from, you know, a sort of a state agency of, of, you know, sort of environmental conservation or even at the federal level. I mean, nobody, you don't have to agree on this stuff. So, you know, I think where we've gone wrong on getting your average person involved in climate change issues in general, I do think that, you know, the conservation focused organizations, you know, around water quality and fisheries have provided good pathways for getting involved. And there's a continuum, right? First thing you can do is, you know, join organizations that support the things that you care about. You know, even if you feel like you're too busy or uh, you're not sure how to get involved in your area, you know, listen, Fly Fishers International is non in competition with anybody, right? I mean, we complement the work that other organizations do um, and, you know, I've known Chris Wood since college and he and I are still buddies. He's a, you know, head of, of, uh, tr- president and CEO of Trout Unlimited. And, you know, I-, I told Chris, I'm like, listen, man, we're, we're promoting joining Trout Unlimited, which I know some people think is insane because we want people to join FFI. yeah. Um, But I want people to join the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust and the Everglades, support the Everglades Foundation and, you know, save the boundary waters and, you know, efforts to, you know, say Bristol Bay, and I understand those are, I've just named some super high profile issues, but like, that's how people wanna connect, like support those folks, right? That's your, to me, that's your entry level, right? Yep. Um, I think what's compelling for a lot of people is to find a local FFI club or TU chapter and get involved in some way. Almost, you know, every one of those clubs and chapters are gonna have some really compelling conservation issues they're working on at a local level. It might be a stream cleanup, which doesn't sound like conservation, but that is an incredible way to begin to instill an enduring conservation ethic that will live with people. I mean, I think I'm a good example of that as well because, you know, I, I started, you know, like little bits, becoming, you know, joining organizations, getting involved, and the next thing you know, I'm, you know, in graduate school working on these issues, um, which I, I realize is not, you know, necessarily everyone's um, path in life. But I, I do think that you know, from that joining and supporting these clubs to you know getting involved on the local level, which which feels rewarding, right? I mean, you know, you you know cast a line in the place that you help clean up, protect, restore, you know, whatever. That's really rewarding. But you know, there are also these high profile national and global issues. And man, I've you've always said the world is run by people who show up. And you know, if you have the opportunity to you know, support something positive or fight, you know, bad stuff, you know, at the regulatory level or, you know, uh, a project that may impact your area. I mean, you know, whether it's a a mining operation, let's say, you know, around Bristol Bay or whatever, um, it doesn't take that much time to write to your elected officials at the local state and national level and that stuff matters over time to show up at a hearing and and voice your opinion on what matters. And frankly, I think it can feel pretty rewarding. And I could give plenty of examples where those efforts, you know, sort of the good news side of things, Dave, those efforts made a difference.
0: Yeah. No, I hear you. I love that. I think that that's the first step is getting involved locally because yeah it's this visceral connection you're in your own water you're doing stuff and now you can keep scaling that up right to different things and who knows right maybe they become like you and you know you you get into it even deeper or right and then but i think also the, the writing letters is a really powerful thing because those elected people you know listen to their constituents, right? If they get letters, that's for sure. They're not going to just not listen for the moment. My guess is most people are are reading those letters. So this is amazing. I think that um, I always think about, you know, again, how do I stay positive on this? I always think of stuff like like Rachel Carson, you know, back in the day, you know, because, you know, we had this period of time where plenty of rivers around the country were so polluted that fish couldn't even live in them. You know, Rachel Carson with Silent Spring, right? All that stuff, the DDT. I mean, so we do see improvements. I mean, this stuff does work. We see the Atlantic salmon around the world. There are places where we're we're doing some things. So I feel like, you know, it, there is a lot of positive stuff. I think that a lot of people think like, well, maybe now things are so crazy because of climate change that it's changed the game. I don't have the answer to that. I mean, what would be your, do you kind of look at that way where you look at these examples of positives that have, you've seen happen and that's what keeps you going?
1: You want to know what gives me the most hope, Dave? Yeah. This upcoming generation of millennials care deeply about issues and they care, you know, and and listen, it may be social justice. It may be, you know, something that, you know, isn't necessarily directly connected to what you feature, you know, on this podcast, but conservation environment is one of the things that they care about. And you know, it's one of the reasons that FFI is beginning to really change some messaging and focus, realizing people care about this stuff. And, you know, it's, yeah, you know, you get excited to flip through your social media feeds and look at grabbing grin shots and be like, oh my God, I'd love to catch a golden Dorado or
0: a- Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Atlantic salmon.
1: Right, yeah, sure, some, you know, some exotic species, like, I mean, who wouldn't want to catch an arapaima on a fly, right? But, you know, that's gotta be um, complemented with, I think news and information in a way that people you know learn and are willing to accept the message that you're trying to get out there about the things that matter. And in my opinion, you know, there's not just hope from this upcoming you know generation. Where sure, you know, l- uh, older folks love to sort of roll their eyes at the habits of millennials necessarily. Right. But like it or not, they're the future. So you can either roll your eyes or you can embrace the things about. You know, that generation where there's value and frankly, that sense of purpose and passion about issues, that's really important. That's, that is going to be what I think helps make a, a big difference as we move forward. And there are two ways to look at what you could do. There is responsibility and there's opportunity, right? Hmm. A lot of times we think to ourselves, yeah, well, there's an opportunity to make sure that we're, you know, instilling this enduring conservation ethic with our audience, right? Yeah. But I think that we've crossed a boundary where now we have a responsibility. You know, and, and the one thing I, I really appreciate about, you know, you know, not just what we're doing with our conservation partners, like, you know, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and TU, et cetera, but, you know, the American Fly Fishing Trade Association has their own fisheries fund. And is very conservation focused. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough, Dave, to be on the board of AFTA. And I've been really heartened by, you know, (laughs) what, what people say behind closed doors might be different than what they, you know, espouse in public. Oh, sure. We care about fisheries, habitat and conservation. But man, these folks do. You know, the folks at, you know, manufacturer, retail, guide and outfitter level, you know, that are, you know, involved in AFTA, they live and breathe this stuff. So when you've got industry leadership taking up the mantle of responsibility, not just opportunity um, on focusing on conservation, A rising generation that is very issue focused and cares about the issues that you and I are talking about. And clubs and councils from organizations like Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, CCA, backcountry hunters and anglers all have a conservation focus. So I just feel like there is a continuum within, you know, sort of the outdoor activity community focused on conservation that gives me hope. And frankly, Those are the dudes I want and the gals I want to hang around with because we're all, you know, pushing the rock in the same direction.
0: Right. Yeah. We're working together on this thing. That's good. Well, let's talk on FFI, maybe talk about, you know, some programs, what you have going. I mean, I know there's plenty going in the Great Lakes, but what would be your high level when you look at this? I'm not sure how the planning, strategic planning, stuff like that works, but what's your focus over like the next year or so from FFI perspective on the conservation end?
1: So on the conservation end, we've been focused on a lot of you know the high profile issues that your guests you know know about, right? So you know protecting the Alaska wilderness, you know the Tongass National Forest. um, We put in a lot of time and effort um, on the effort to remove the um, Snake River dams and restore salmon and steelhead habitat. Um, You know the two hundred and over two hundred thousand acre Rainy River watershed and the Boundary Waters, you know, is under threat from uh, surface mining you know, all of those types of issues. I mean, you know, those continue. I mean, what I see is some incremental success stories that are worth celebrating. And by the way, as a community and the environmental and conservation community in general is awful at taking the time to celebrate a small victory. Listen, the fight continues, but if you don't stop and sort of (laughs) nourish your soul with what you may have accomplished on some level, To your point like it's kind of hard to keep getting excited about this stuff right so you know there is good news right on those three issues that i just mentioned in addition to you know what's happening with pebble mine and listen man we don't do politics at ffi but people should pay attention to where good and bad environmental policy comes from and um you know where those threats come from because frankly That stuff matters a lot, um, again, on, you know, local, state and national level. Um, so we're going to continue putting our shoulder to the wheel, you know, on those kinds of issues. Again, you know, we really, you know, value the, um, the synergy of working with conservation partners and how we can come together, you know, creating, you know, one voice among dozens of outdoor hunting, fishing related, you know, organizations that are all working together towards these issues. And, you know, when you end up with, you know, a really strong coalition working on an important issue, it builds momentum for your activities, efforts and success moving forward. And it gets to feel like, you know, one plus one equals three or four, not two. So, you know, that's our goal moving forward is to continue to provide conservation grants at the local level for, you know, you'll oftentimes our clubs and councils. Um, you know, we've provided a lot of funding for Science on the Fly, Mm. Um, you know, I would love what they do and, and, and love their approach and focus. Um, and then continue again to work with conserv- aligned conservation partners on the issues that all of your listeners, hopefully most of them are sort of tracking and paying attention to and are caring about. That's right.
0: Where could somebody go right now? That's listening that maybe doesn't know all the things that are going on with the, the issues out there. Is there a place on your website or somewhere where they can yeah. say, okay, here's the big issues that I should get involved in around the country world?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you go to flyfishersinternational.org and click on conservation, we've actually just upgraded our website and the information on conservation. It's, it's, I'm so glad you asked that because, um, we realized how much people valued learning about conservation. Now, right. obviously, they may not want to dig into like, you know, rulemaking and, It's just, it's overwhelming and and it's easy to get lost in the weeds. But, you know, I think we've got some really good high level information on a lot of these, you know, sort of increased profile types of issues. And again, listen, I'm all about supporting our colleagues and partners. So, you know, whether it's, uh, depending on where you live, right? So, you know, whether it's, you know, Bonefish and Tarpon Trust or Trout Unlimited or, you know, CCA, I mean, you know, Save the Boundary Waters. I mean, there's a way to get information from those local organizations. And because I think we've done a good job and I think sort of the fisheries conservation and fly fishing space of working together, there's a lot of information sharing as well. So folks won't necessarily, hopefully, I would assume they wouldn't get competing information about what's going on and what's important, because I think we were all in in alignment on these issues. And I say we, meaning, you know, the organizations that focus on this stuff.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. And I love that you started that off with the you know, giving money to the local groups, right? Empowering the local groups. I've heard that quite a bit from, um, you know, people in the conservation space that including like Patagonia, where that's kind of the yep. same thing they're doing, right? They're giving, they know that, you know, it's better to go, you know, right from that end and like let the local groups focus and protect their areas. And then that works its way up, Um yeah, and I think one thing I was thinking about as you were talking there, I was just listening to a podcast, you know, on the outside podcast, right? Which is, uh, and they, yeah. had, they had William Shatner on. And it got me thinking because, of course, William Shatner is this, you know, kind of famous person. And um, But he was talking about how he did, I don't know if you remember this, but remember he did the, uh, the Jeff Bezos. He took the rocket up into space. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and he came down and he cried. You know, he was crying when he came off of it. And I was listening to him talk about it, and it was partly because he was realizing these issues we're talking about about the planet, right, and all this stuff. But Bezos on that said that there's a couple things that came from me that, you know, Bezos said, like, part of, I guess, his thing is is he's thinking, well, if we can get the polluters out into space, right? So you got these big tech things. That's one thing there, right? So I think maybe a lot of people that maybe are deniers, they think that way. They think, hey, tech, we're going to solve this problem, and maybe we will, whatever. Also on that would be William Shatner. How much do you think it's important to have people like William Shatner, famous people out there, talking for the conservation do you see that as an important thing i guess there's two a couple questions there
1: you know it's a double-edged sword uh frankly because honestly when you have you know celebrities working on issues that are important i think it can inspire their fan base and even if they're not inspired to take action like you know leonardo dicaprio might um they can at least still accept it as something that's important, right? And so, when you go out with your buddies, or you know, you go to a dinner party or whatever, and maybe the topic of sort of politics and environment and conservation come up, you know, maybe a William Shatner espousing, you know, the value of conservation and his concerns about, you know, protecting—we got one planet, right? Let's not screw this up. Um, maybe people won't be so passive, and they'll be willing to accept that, right? That's the one side. On the other side, too. You know, it's it's uh it just has become so such an easy knee jerk reaction to say, well, of course, you know, these Hollywood types are all about these, you know, crazy liberal causes. What's
0: wrong with them? Oh, right. Yeah. So, again, politics comes up again all the time. Oh, it's
1: a bummer, man. I You know, right. I mean, obviously, I was involved in it because I worked for a governor, but um, it's just to me, it's tragic. And that's a bad news story. We won't get into Dave. But yeah, but I, you know, listen, I'm ecstatic when you have. Um, well-known, you know, either celebrities or luminaries, you know, focusing on those things that are important, like protecting the planet. Um, My opinion, the the benefits far outweigh, you know, any negatives.
0: Yeah, that's right. And what's your take on the tech thing? I guess that's probably so far out there, but do you guys get involved in that? Think about that at all? The fact that there might be some technology that helps kind of where we're going in this crisis we have? I kind of worry that
1: while we have the technological knowledge, it's at this point, it's about using that technology to adapt. And you know technology isn't going to reverse, you know over a hundred years of you know greenhouse gas emissions, you know, f- you know beginning with the industrial revolution. Um, I mean, it is pretty remarkable what it is that we are able to accomplish with technology. But I, you know, again, it's limited. And I always have a concern about the message that it sends when people believe so much in the value of technology. Um, You know, it's kind of like, I don't even know if you want to go down this road, man, but it's kind of like, you know, stocked fish or not stocked fish, right? You know, you can argue it either way. And just to give an analogy without, you know, like diving into that, I mean, one of the challenges of stocking fish. Is that people go and catch fish and they develop, you know, they're probably not paying attention to they just, you know, like no, they worked hard all week, they got a little bit of time, they take their kids out. Like, I don't blame them at all for just they go out and enjoy it. And it creates a false assumption of water quality that can support a cold water fishery as these fisheries are declining. And my question is, well, isn't there value in people learning that? No, there's no place for you to go catch fish with your kid because we've really hammered these watersheds to the point where they can't sustain fish. Now, I understand there's another side of it. That's how I feel about technology, right? There's this assumption that we've developed enough technology about you know, saving energy, mitigating pollution, turning pollution or waste into some kind of quality product that people are like, oh, well, we got this covered because we're smart and like all these really smart people are, you know, going to figure out how we, you know, dig ourselves out of this hole. That You know, I would say that's the, I, I don't know, downside, I guess.
0: Yeah. That's the problem is that people, I think that is the problem that people feel that and then like, well, I don't really have to do anything because, you know, the tech's going to take care of it. but you know, the the thing is, is that, wow, yeah, what if they don't? And it's way better to have people involved, engaged, doing things. Um, So that's great. Well, I love that you mentioned stock too, because I think that's a perfect segue into, you know, our Great Lakes Steelhead School, Yep. you know, because it's interesting. You know, I think things have evolved like everything, but, you know, steelhead is obviously a West Coast species. It was transplanted over to the Great Lakes and now they release like 1.6 million steelhead into Lake Erie, right? And it's an amazing program i mean we had chagrin river outfitters on they were like he said himself he wouldn't have a fly shop if it wasn't for the steelhead program and so you've got this stuff going on but at the same time they're not native fish you know maybe there's other native fish so i don't know i mean that's like when you hear that whole thing i mean what's your take on that um i guess just generally what's your thoughts on the steelhead program there and do you feel like that's a good thing bad thing do you have an opinion there
1: i do well yeah, and, and it's it's you know what it is, Dave? It's the other side of the question, right? So, you know, I just gave you the reason why, you know, I have concerns about what the, the message that it sends to your average person about the quality of the water resources around them. But the flip side is, you know, and again, you, you can argue both ways, is it gets people outside and enjoying the resource. And, you know, hey, I'm the <laughs> I have enjoyed heck out of fishing for steelhead out of the great lakes and you know (laughs) including you know in the winter in blizzards where i probably had no business being out there and you know you see people lining the rivers and you know i don't necessarily like fishing around you know other people you know what everybody was out there together they were courteous no one was casting over each other's line if someone hooked up a fish they got out of the way and what i saw was that you know, the steelhead fishery, whether you know, stocked or not, I know it's stocked, right? Yeah. It created this community of people who enjoyed getting outside and you know, which beats the heck out of you know, go having them go play golf, my gosh, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um yeah. and frankly, I do think that it gets people involved caring about the resource and how that begins to develop a stronger conservation ethic that translates into other issues in other areas. So, you know, you got people out on the water because of a resource that, you know, you've been supplementing, right, with stocked fish, Mm -hmm. right? But there are tremendous benefits, you know, beyond that in a person's journey along the fly fishing path. And then, you know, and then to your point too, I mean, it is undeniable The economic driver and economic benefits generated by fisheries that are supported by hatcheries. And, you know, when I was um, the head of Vermont's Fish and Wildlife Program, the legislature was looking at closing or gutting some of the hatcheries we had. And, you know, fortunately we had some excellent data from, um, you know, studies and surveys, including U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, about the economic value and the economic engine especially you know like the great lakes right okay you know where i am you know i'm in vermont right you're talking about small towns many of which in that particular area of the upper midwest you know maybe industry left years ago they've been struggling and what a great opportunity to begin to at least replace some of that economic activity in those communities with something that is about enjoying you know this resource Rather than exploiting this resource, I mean that's the right. That's the big problem with you know when people talk about like pick a potential impact. Right, a mine along a river, right, has a shelf life. And sure, you might have a job in the mine for a little while, but at some point that's going to go away. But if you protect your resources and you value them in a way that people can enjoy them sustainably, that's I think important to remember too. Well, you've just created. Um, an economic engine and an economic activity that can last for generations you know if the people that enjoy it are involved in protecting it as well so there you know there's multiple benefits and like i said man i mean like i've had a blast fishing for salmon and steelhead yeah in the great lakes tribs again with my buddies in a community of people and you know we stayed in the local uh you know there's like a rooms behind the fly shop and I also have a rule, I have a rule too, which, you know, I hope your listeners will will follow this also. If I go into a fly shop and so great example, right, this is a fly shop, you know, near on the um, Pulaski, New York, right, Uh, tributary of uh, um, Lake Erie. And I go in there and I get information, hey, you know, wondering, you know, like, I'm like everybody else, right? You know, hey, wondering, you know, what's fishing, what sections are fishing well, you know, they're, you know, what do you got in the river, you know, what are they eating? all that stuff. And if the folks in the shop say, you know what? They're eating these flies right here and I like to use this leader here, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't care if I have 100 of that exact same fly and 50 liters, I'm going to buy them anyway because that's the way we support those local businesses. They provide you with information, support and encouragement and we buy stuff to make sure they're there when we come back next year oftentimes whether i need it or not
0: bear vault is one way to assure your next backcountry trip stays memorable epic and safe bear vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food this in turn keeps your food safe keeps the bears safe and keeps you safe i've got a classic story that i told i've told a few times about the bear taking my backpack while up in alaska had my lunch and some snacks in there and just went up around the corner to fish for a bit when I got back it was uh, totally gone. If I would have had that bear vault right at that moment I would have been okay because my food would have been completely sealed. The bear would have had no idea and no reason to take my backpack so a good reminder there. You might not realize it but this type of thing happens all the time even to experienced outdoorsmen. The great news for us is now we can experience the great stuff of a remote trip without ever having to worry about animals fiddling with our stuff. Sleep soundly knowing your vault has sealed the deal for you. Believe it or not, food storage is a key consideration while backcountry hiking, fishing, or camping. The Bear Vault also has some great bonus features like the see through sidewall so you can find your stuff really easy and a large opening plus it doubles as a nice camp stool. this thing is legit it definitely is one of my this might be my favorite feature is is the camp stool. you know i love a good chair out there check in with the crew at bear vault at wetflyswing.com slash bear vault that's bear vault b-e-a-r-v-a-u-l-t okay back to the show yeah, that's the local fly shop, right? That's We all know how important that is and how cool that is. And that's what's awesome about this is that we've got, I mentioned one, Chagrin River Outfitters is one of our local shops, a part of this event we're doing. Uh, Rick Custich is going to be heading off. We're doing uh, concurrent uh, sessions of this trip this year. So we've got Jeff Liske in, in Ohio, Rick Custich, and he's got a fly shop of his own he's going to be talking about as well. So I think you you hit it on the head as far as, you know, the economic engine. You hear that a lot about people don't realize that, wow, the power. Yeah, if you can, you know, you don't have to necessarily kill fish or, you know, eat fish. There's a whole a lot of money to be made there, right, through um, people getting out on the water. And and I will say, you know, again, like I mentioned with um, the fish, you, you mentioned it again with steelhead. So steelhead people are in the Great Lakes loving steelhead. But Jeff Liskey, who's our guide out there, he's fishing for freshwater drum and other species. So I think he's a good example of, you know, you start with one thing and as you go on your journey and now people that know him are like, oh, wow, this drum, what is this drum? And so, right. So there's all these different species and I'm not even sure freshwater drum is a native species. I'm, I'm assuming it is, but is that kind of how you feel that that's part of the journey that, that is the benefit of what we're talking about here?
1: Oh my gosh. It's a hoot. What you can catch on a fly. Um, Most people that don't fly fish perceive of fly fishing as a sport for rich old white guys who like to go to Montana and catch trout. And frankly, this is the value of what we do at FFI, right? Because we focus on all fish, all waters, right? You know, Mm. we've got clubs in Wichita, Kansas, and Iowa, right? right? You know, we've got 21 clubs in Texas because they focus on all these species and- you know, not only is it a part of, of, you know, the journey that many of us take, like, as you just mentioned, you know, the guy that fishes for drum, it's also the value of what it is that we do. And, and, uh, you know, we've really begun to sort of expand our reach and transform, you know, how we engage with a broader fly fishing community. And, you know, part of the reason is so that, you know, we can inspire and engage future fly fishing enthusiasts who may not have trout anywhere near them, but, Hey man, go cast a fly rod for, you know, the carp in the ditch behind your house, right? And yep. what I find so funny and this is me too is how many guides like in trouty places don't fish for trout. They go carp fishing, right? Yeah. Um and where I live, right? You know, we've got some really good trout resources, but man, the time of year when it's the fishing can be good is the windows are pretty small. But you right. know what we do have? We've got a ton of different species of fish that offer fly fishing opportunities. I've got a buddy, want to give a shout out to uh, Drew Price, um, who's a guide on Lake Champlain, which, you know, it's six miles wide at the widest, 120 miles long. You know, aside from the Great Lakes, it's the largest freshwater lake in the world, not the world, the United States. Um, And uh, we don't go look, when I go fishing with Drew, in fact, um, he texted me right before I jumped on your show about getting out. We're fishing for... Long-nose gar and bowfin and uh, carp that are over thirty pounds and la- are huge in Lake Champlain and sheep's head, so which is what we call freshwater drum here. And man, if you have never caught a freshwater drum on a fly rod, pound for pound, they give smallmouth a run for their money because they're so strong and they're 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 kind of laterally flattened.
0: All right. Are they kind of like a? Per- they kind of look like a permit a little bit. The head, or you know.
1: No? Yeah, you know. Actually, yeah. I think they do a little bit. They've got crushers, um, you know, inside their mouth. And the thing is, when it's August here and it's hot, and trout are nowhere to be found, we're sight fishing for drum, carp, gar, bowfin, and whatever else. I mean, two weeks ago, I was out with Drew and and another uh, buddy of mine. Uh, my buddy got a. Um, 49 inch long nose gar on a fly. Wow. He landed a decent bowfin, but uh, lost one that I mean, we could see the fish eat. The, like we were sight fishing at these fish. Um, probably 12, 15 pound bowfin. Wow.
0: Yeah. And you're a skiff. Are you in a skiff kind of sight fishing or that sort of thing? Oh
1: my God. The guy has the greatest boat. He's got um, a toy. That he went, he drove down to Tennessee and, and if you, if you don't know a TOWE. No, what's a TOWE? It's a longer, it's honestly, if you were, if, if a canoe and a drift boat had a baby, that's okay. So it's got a flat stern. So he's got a motor. He also has a polling platform, right? So you can haul ass, you know? Yeah. It's got a V. It's got a little bit of a V in it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. um, And so, you know, that's what he uses where he's up sight fishing. And I mean, you know, anybody that's done sight fishing, whether it's saltwater, freshwater, whatever, you realize the guy standing on the platform can see so much better than you in the front, even though you think you're closer. And that's the case. But, you know, sort of circling back to your question, it's a really good example of how fly fishing is evolving in exciting ways that, you know, people are beginning to target. But well not target specific fish, people are beginning to realize there's not much you can't catch on a fly rod. Exactly. Um, you know, I mean, Drew has been, you know, on Lake Champlain, he catches channel cats, you know, on a fly. I mean, you know, yeah, huge it's pretty fish. Cool. It's super fun.
0: It's pretty cool. Yeah. I was just thinking we had, um, uh, the Echo Fly Fishing team on uh, Tim, Ray, Jeff, and his the uh, the two guys that purchased the company. He recently sold it, and um, they were talking about the uh, fishing for carp as well, and using the bun, using the hot dog bun as their bait, as their fly for carp. Which is it got me thinking, like, man, these carp, they're not quite that smart. But the funny thing is, is that you know what I mean? Like he was talking about fishing at night and stuff like that. But yeah, that just goes to the thing of like, yeah, you can catch any fish, including giant tarpon. Right. These sailfish, all sorts of stuff, which is I think keeps it exciting. Because I'm on that journey. That's where I am in my journey. I mean, I love trout fishing. I just got off the river fishing for trout, but I'm excited to to get out there and, and hit all these species I haven't done, you know, hit yet. So well,
1: I can tell you right now, man, I mean, you've got a standing invitation, you know. If you ever want to come out my way, you know, pick the time of year. And um, in fact, Drew had uh he had Blaine Chocolate out. I guess it was last year they'd caught some bowfin. Um it's a really it's a really fun time and um it's a way to catch some different fish
0: that's cool yeah i've heard drew's name definitely before so that's awesome that you're your friends out there you know we mentioned you know the tarpon that's come up you will i'll put some links to the you know bonefish, tarpon trust and some other groups out there we actually the episode that just went live today was monty burke who wrote the um the book lords of the fly right which is oh, yeah. the history of the tarpon you know like that whole crazy thing back in the 70s or whenever that you know was where They pretty much just were going for the giant tarpon and and killed a lot of fish and, you know, it impacted the fishery. And I think now there's other things going on with tarpon, but, but again, there's a lot of issues. And I think, um, I mean, would you say like, again, going back to the person listening now, just find that local group, start there, get involved, and then you can take it as go as deep as you want to go.
1: Yeah. I would say, first of all, if you are new to fly fishing or you're new to your area or, you know, you're listening to this podcast because you fly fish a little bit. Um, you know, and listen, I got to give you credit. I mean, you know, great episodes, really informative stuff. Um, you know, I love what you're doing out in the Great Lakes, coming up mm-hmm. here. Um, so, you know, I, I just, I really value that. You're, I feel like, you know, you add a lot to this sort of, you know, global community in your own way. You know, so you're, you're helping to inspire people also um, to get involved. But if you take that step to find the local FFI club, you know, these clubs, or your, your local TU chapter or whatever, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the folks involved, they got into the sport because they had a passion at some point and they wanna share that passion, right? And, you know, especially I know through our FFI clubs, there's this, you know, decade long history of teaching and mentorship and we've got a lot of learning resources, no matter what your skill level is. And, you know, people are excited to teach. They're excited to show you, you know, the areas that, you know, need protecting and why they need protecting. And it's just the ability to, again, show up. I mean, listen, most local newspapers, not enough happens on a local level. They're looking for news. So it's not hard to find an announcement about, you know, the McKenzie River Fly Fishing Clubs meeting will happen, you know, at this bar and restaurant at this time, like, show up it's fun that's the thing too man i feel like we forget is like this is fun right this is you know the whole sport is is supposed to be fun. it's not not a competition to see you can cast the farthest or catch the biggest fish you know it's not about you know one-upping your friends or you know i mean there's a little bit too much of that stuff i think in fly fishing right it's about like having a great time like with your community of people or You know, if if you walked off the river or got out of the boat, you know, or wherever you are, whatever you're fishing for, and you didn't catch a damn thing and you had a great day, you are doing something right. And that's the important thing to remember. And, you know, I know that this is sort of a a standard way to look at it, but I mean, you know, when you first get into fly fishing, you just want to catch a fish. Mm -hmm. Then you want to catch a lot of fish. Then you want to catch a big fish. Then you want to catch a lot of big fish. And then you're just happy to go fishing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's how you know you've arrived.
0: Right. Oh, that's it. So when you're out there on the water and you're like, Hey, I'm good. I'm, if I don't catch fish today, I'm totally good with it and all that. That's it. That's the point where you're good.
1: Yeah. I mean, and listen, you know, I mean, I do think FFI is, you know, the sort of the universally, you know, premier resource for education and teaching people. but. Good instructors and good mentors are all over the place. Some aren't even affiliated with any organization that you just heard of and they're outstanding what they're able to teach, impart, inspire, engage. you know so even if you can't find you know a local club or chapter, you know usually there are you know, go to your local river. I mean how many much time I spent walking up and down rivers, you know when I first got started like picking people's brains and asking them questions, And almost all of them were so happy to stop and help me. You know, and I can remember those people and those moments in my journey where somebody took the time to stop, to show me how to do something, to give me some flies and wish me well and send me on my way. Most people are like that. And I think that that's what I would share with your listeners who are, you know, looking to get more involved in this is to take a leap of faith that people in the fly fishing community, no matter where you go and what you're fishing for, uh, are excited, you know, unless you walk into their hole while they're, you know, fishing, yeah. but they're excited to help you. And I'll say one more thing too, for those that are experienced to remind them and boy, just took me forever to, to figure out probably longer than it should have, which should tell you how immature I am. Even at my age. most people who do dumb stuff, don't realize what they're doing. 95% of people. And, you know, it's incumbent upon the people who view themselves as mentors, instead of being like, God, what an idiot. I can't, can you believe they? how about, Hey, Hey, listen, buddy, just want to let you know for next time, like I'm good with it. I'm not in a hurry, but before you back your boat down into the ramp and there's 20 other boats, uh, that's not the time to get the cooler out and rig your rod up, right? You right. know, just uh, hey, get yourself ready. Like, be nice about it. They may tell you to, you know, to go to hell. They may appreciate it. So, those are the two sides. You know, if you're new to this, take a leap of faith that people are welcoming, encouraging, and want to help you. And if you've been around a long time, assume positive intent until you uh, have evidence to the contrary
0: right perfect and i got a couple of just rapid fire questions to, to take us out of here if this sounds good so yeah um so i'm always interested i'm not sure do you listen to any podcasts or are you more music when you're on the road heading to a trip what are you doing
1: so funny you ask that because i i was just talking to a buddy about this i do listen to a lot of music and i tend to try to either escape work by list i listen to a ton of podcasts and it's usually on something that interests me you know, where I, I might learn something, you know, like that's outside of my normal professional world because, it, you know, sometimes it feels a little bit narrowly focused. So, first of all, I, I don't even know how anybody could go through life without music that fills their soul. And I love that podcasts can inform and inspire in spite
0: of those that actually misinform and <laughs> create bad energy. Right, right, right. Exactly. No, that's good. So, give us uh, one podcast that you've listened to recently. And one uh, music group or song or something like that?
1: Oh, man,
0: boy. Which one's easier? Is it easier to come up with a a song, music or the podcast?
1: Uh, Music, um, generally speaking. So first of all, I have a rule about anything in life is I appreciate it if it's authentic, right? So, you know, I musically, if music is authentic, I will tend to enjoy it. So, you know, I have a passion for everything from like classic country to, you know, good jazz or whatever. But, you know, generally speaking, I'm definitely kind of in the Tyler Childers, Sturgill Simpson, uh, you know, Chris Stapleton kind of groove, I love that. And then I'll, I'll you know, I'll shift over to, um, I love sort of like what you might, music you might hear on like college stations, like sort of Americana and independent, you know, music. So, you know, everything from like, you know, good lord i mean i suppose it's somewhere in between but like you know the head and the heart or um you know i love jason isbell and uh you know i'm trying to think of who i've just sort of pulled out of my playlist like the oh hellos like random band from texas i love those guys um i mean listen honestly like uh pandora and spotify's ability to like tell you what you haven't listened to that's awesome is pretty compelling avid brothers there you go love the avid brothers
0: oh the avid brothers
1: oh they're awesome
0: yeah perfect we'll throw a link to uh, youtube in the show notes to that so people can listen to that taken away
1: i've got an entire playlist dedicated just to my favorite uh avid brothers songs
0: avid and is that A V I D? A V E T T. oh a v e t t oh avid yeah avid brothers yeah. okay
1: yep um, and then, and then I'll give you a podcast. Uh, what do I like? Um, I get a kick out of those guys that do smartless.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: It's not fly fishing. You know, what I find is some celebrities are really boring and some are unbelievably entertaining. And so if you want to listen to one smart list episode, which I laughed until I cried, listen to George Clooney. Oh, George Clooney. He is the most incredible practical joker. Oh, Yes. Oh, if you listen to a couple of the stories that he will tell you, they are absolutely disgusting and brilliant. I love it.
0: Awesome. I'll put a link to that episode in the, uh, in the show notes. I
1: love it. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, George, or I don't, I don't think, and I do love Smartless too. I think, uh, yeah, Bateman and, uh, Will and, uh, yeah, the the three guys, yeah, Sean Hayes. Yeah, they're, they're awesome together. So, so that's good. So we got a podcast out here. We got, we got some music. We're, we're building up the show notes here. This is going to be awesome. Um. And I guess, I mean, that's kind of, you know, I guess let's leave us with a mentor because we talked a lot about that. So in your fly fishing space, is there a person out there? You mentioned Courier. I mean, you can't think of a bigger person than that. But is there one person that really influenced you in in the fly fishing over the years?
1: Um, Can I give more than one person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I, uh, before the internet, which should tell you that I'm old, I watched Lee Wolf Lefty Cray and Mel Krieger's videos over and over and over again. But I would say, uh, and these people may not know this, but um, my casting mentor, absolutely. Howard Cole, uh, Mm. owner of High Country Flies back in the 90s. Fly tying mentor, local guy around here, Peter Burton, um, who was, I mean, he really inspired and encouraged me. And by the way, great example of a local guy not looking for any notoriety who just wanted to share his passion for fly fishing and fly tying. And honestly, uh, it's funny, I'm still friends with him today, but, you know, Tom Rosenbauer's early books were, and they are still so relevant and they're so well-written. And I just appreciate uh, what he does. Um, Yeah, so there you go. Peter Burton, Howard Cole, Tom Rosenbauer.
0: There you go. All right, Patrick. Well, I like a lot of these, I feel like we could keep chatting. I'd love to hear about, but you know, digging more to the acid rate and stuff, but I think we'll have to leave some of these other questions I have for a future episode. And I think the cool thing is, is that I think after chatting with you and, you know, your team, that I think there'll be some opportunities for us to work together. So I'm excited about that. But um, yeah, thanks for all your, uh, the information today, flyfishersinternational.org and, and we'll just uh, go from there. Thanks so
1: much, Abe. It was really fun being on the show. And I just want to, you know, say to folks out there that I feel as though FFI is in a really transformative time in its history with a lot of exciting stuff going on. And so, you know, if you think you know FFI, check us out. And I think people will really enjoy a lot of the great stuff that we're doing to engage and inspire, you know, fly fishing enthusiasts, you know, anywhere you go and on any fish you catch.
0: There we go wetflyswing.com slash 478. You can head over there right now, check out a little more in-depth details on what Patrick talked about today. Uh, wetflyswing.com slash 478 will get you the show notes and uh, and we should have some good links and hopefully some entertaining uh, videos and some good stuff there. Reminder before we get out of here, we uh, launched the big giveaway this year right now. We launched it for the Steelhead Alley School. This is the trip that we did last year, and it was so epic that we are doing it again, and this year we're doubling up, and we're gonna be hitting New York and Ohio this year for Steelhead. So if you wanna check it out right now, wetflyswing.com giveaway. Just enter your email and name really quick, and you are entered there. If you wanna get and actually save a spot right now, we should have a, well, hopefully we have a, a few spots remaining for this trip. wetflyswing.com slash Steelhead School will get you to a place where you can enter to get more information on this trip. If you want to purchase a slot, learn more, go there right now, and we will follow up with you uh, by email or by phone. Uh, That's what we got. Do we have any fun facts to uh, take away this year? Um, Take away. Do we have any fun facts to take away right now? I'm trying to think. Fun facts around the Steelhead School. Uh, I will just say I want to go back to last year's Steelhead School, give you a little perspective on what it was like. We went out there, and Jeff, uh, like always, over-delivered, over-achiever. We had an amazing trip, um, had lots of activity, lots of steelhead on the line. We learned some new things. Um, So if you're interested in this, definitely check it out. I'll follow up with you. I'm going to be out there this year. I'm going to be migrating around between the two events, and I'm excited to see everybody who is on the trip this year. And if you don't make the trip, definitely reach out to me and let me know you're interested. We could always follow up at a later point as well. Let's take a look where we're heading. We're wrapping up Steelhead Alley next week. We're going to be doing a live event, live giveaway. If you want to go to wetflyswing.com live, that'll take you to the page, and you can get updated if you entered for this giveaway. On Tuesday, uh, July 25th, we're going to be announcing the winner of this live event, and you can check it out. We're also going to be giving away a few bonuses. We always do that on live events, so if you want another chance, to get uh, some of these items. Check it out right now. Uh, and next week after that, we are hitting. Uh, we're hitting the St. Joe. We're getting back into travel. We're hitting, uh, heading back to Idaho, and then we're gonna circle back around for a little bonus Great Lakes Dude Podcast. This is the one where Jeff's gonna be talking and uh, interviewing. You don't want to miss that one uh, this week. So we're gonna keep this going. We are over halfway now. What do we got? January, February, March, April, May, June—six months. So we are well into now the second half of the year, and we've been doing three episodes every single week this year. Uh, let me know. I'd love to hear what you think about doing these episodes every week. Are you liking it? Send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com. Or is it overload? Is it too much? My hope was is that we do enough content here in episodes, that there's something that really meets your needs, even if you know not every episode hits you. Um, But if you have a topic idea and you reach out to me, I will not only give you a shout out on this podcast, but I will put that episode together for you. So if there's something we're missing right now, if you've been listening, just thinking, man, I love uh, I love Steelhead or maybe I don't love Steelhead. And I would love to hear more about this. That's what this show is all about. It's all about you. So if you reach out to me, I will make it more about you. And I am going to stop talking here because... Uh, I'm talking a lot, and I just hope you connect with me, like I said, online. Hope to see you on this trip as well. Would love to do a campfire chat uh, with myself and the crew. That's the ultimate wrap-up of the trip every year. We have that campfire chat at the end, and just sit back and enjoy the evening, uh, stars, the sky, uh, that environment when you're under the under it after a trip like this, and you're sitting around with Jeff and or Rick uh, and the crew talking about how the, the week went all the good stuff we learned so this is what it's all about it's hard to express it uh, obviously on a podcast but i would love to see you there all right i'm gonna get out of here i hope you are having a great afternoon a great evening or a great morning wherever in the world you are and i am excited and look forward to talking to you and connecting soon thanks for listening to the wet fly swing fly fishing show for notes and links from this episode visit wetflyswing.com